better opportunities for you to get involved. So when I was in high school, uh, I graduated from high school in 1985. So let's say 1983-ish, I got my driver's license. And uh, with that driver's license, I eventually got the privilege of driving my mom's 1983 Nissan Maxima. Um, my, my parents actually had matching Maximas, which was kind of weird. Uh, my dad had a kind of a grayish silver one. My mom had a blue one. I felt like the blue one was faster, and so I always wanted to drive that. And uh, my dad would never let me drive his car, by the way, but he was fair game with my mom's car for some reason. And so, uh, you know, I'd get in the car on a Friday night, and I had one rule, be home by midnight. Which now, look, that was very generous of them, right? Because my dad would say, nothing good happens after midnight, right? Have y'all ever heard that or have you ever said that to your kids? Yeah, it's probably just a, a, a truth. It's probably somewhere in scripture, I'm not sure. But uh, so, so here's the deal. I would go out and this was before GPS, it was before cell phones. And so once I left the house, all bets are off. And there are things that I did between uh, 6 p.m. and 12 a.m. that probably should have gotten me killed. Um, there were definitely fireworks involved on a lot uh, of, of instances. But here's what I know, man. I had free reign to go out, but the only rule was be home by midnight. And so on this particular night, it's a Friday night, um, I lose track of time. And I'm on my way home, and I'm driving down Main Street in Duncanville, I'm on the thriving metropolis of Duncanville, Texas. I'm on my way home, and I look at the clock, and it's 12.15. So I'm in trouble, and I know I'm in trouble. And so uh, because I'm in trouble, I thought, I need a peace offering. So I pulled into 7-Eleven to buy my parents some ice cream. So here's the other thing that I don't understand. My parents would always wait up till I got home. Now I'm thinking about that. What are you doing up at midnight, you know? But they were up. They were always up watching TV, waiting for me to come home. I guess they were wanting to make sure I was safe. And so uh, I go into 7-Eleven. I park the car. I go in. I grab some ice cream. As I'm walking out, I watch as someone backs into my mom's 1983 Maxima, smashes the back door in. Um, turns out it was somebody I knew. And I'm like, no! So now, number one, I'm late. Number two, I now have to call my dad who comes up to 7-Eleven, which is about five, seven minutes from our house. He has to drive up there at 1230 at night and he gets out of the car and I get that look of, you idiot, right? And, and now he's inspecting the car. And, and so he's like, what are you doing here anyway? And I'm like, I stopped to get y'all ice cream on the way home. <laughs> And what does he say? This would have never happened if you had been where you were supposed to be, right? So instead of obedience, I tried to cover, hide, justify, manipulate the situation and it just made things worse. Um, I think I wrecked that car like four times, by the way. Um, but a good deed meant to cover up disobedience was really pointless. So in the kingdom of God, the ends don't justify the means. There are good things and there are God things. And there are a lot of good things that are in scripture that God never called you to do. Amen. So if only there were a way to know how to live as obedient people in the kingdom of God. A life in Jesus is, is really simple. Listen for his voice and do what he says. 
In fact, the true test of discipleship is obedience. Do you realize that? The true test of discipleship is obedience. And we can all talk a good game. We can talk about being a follower of Jesus, but the true test of your faith is the fruit of a life of obedience. So you can say you follow Jesus all you want, but the proof is in the fruit. Elizabeth Elliot once said this, does it make sense to pray for guidance about the future if we're not obeying in the thing that lies right before us today? How many momentous events in scripture depended on one person's seemingly small act of obedience? Rest assured, do what God tells you to do now and depend upon it, you'll be shown what to do next. So I love this quote. Simply put, stop praying for God to bless you out there when you're not willing to walk in obedience to what's right in front of you. Jesus himself said it in John 14, 23. He said this, he said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. What Jesus was saying is this, you can obey without loving, but you can't love without obeying. You can obey without loving and simply put, you know what that is, obeying without loving? It's religion. It's legalism. But you can't love without obeying. So don't say you love Jesus if you're unwilling to obey and follow his commands. And so we're continuing in Philippians 2 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Uh, we've been in Philippians for about six weeks and uh, we're walking through this verse by verse. We finished at verse 11 last week and we're gonna pick up where we left off, verses 12 through 18 today. But Paul's gonna continue to implore the church of Philippi, these young fledgling Christians that are living uh, in, in a non-Christian culture, Right? They're living under Roman oppression. Uh, Philippi was a very Roman city. And so they're living in a godless culture and he's encouraging them to excel in obedience to Jesus no matter what, no matter what. So let's start with verse 12 and we'll start working our way through this. It starts with an interesting word, therefore, it says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's a lot in that that we're gonna unpack, but let's start with the word therefore. So anytime you see the word therefore, what do you need to do? Back up. Back up, right? So you need to take a step back. Um, you you got to ask the question, what is the therefore there for, right? It's there for a reason, so you got to back up. And he, he used it just a couple of verses back uh, in the passage last week. But, but let's back up all the way to chapter 1, verse 27, because it's where he starts this whole theme of obedience. He says, whatever happens, live a life worthy of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we've been here now for three weeks, right? Whatever happens, what does that mean? Whatever happens. Remember, there's a simplicity in this. This is a no excuses life. No matter what, live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. 
And so he went on to talk about the end of chapter one, remember, the importance of living a like-minded life, right? Like-minded with the people around you standing firm in a culture that is moving against the purposes of God. He says, listen, be like-minded, stand firm, even against the culture. Do you think we need to hear that today? And then he moves into chapter two and he says, and be like-minded with each other inside the church. In fact, think about somebody other than yourself. Who needs to hear that this morning, right? So so this whole idea uh, of being like-minded, developing a mindset that we together stand strong and firm against the culture that is moving against the purposes of God. That, by the way, is the United States of America today. We are not one nation under God. That's a great thing to put in a pledge, but that is not functionally who we are as a nation. So don't believe the hype. We are a nation moving against the purposes of God. And he's like, hey, listen, never has there been a greater opportunity. This is not fear-based. We don't need to be afraid of the culture. We don't want to run from the culture. We want to run toward the burning building. We're called to live a countercultural life, be like-minded outside the church. But then we gotta be like-minded inside the church. The reason we are so irrelevant to the world is because we can't get it right in here. We're still trying to figure it out in here. And listen, at Restoration, we're a melting pot, right? We're all over the map. And I love the theological tension that takes place in the room every Sunday, right? You got some Reformed people and some Arminian people. I'm tempted to call you out so y'all can argue with each other, right? (laughs) We've got Catholics, Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, Church of Christ. What? All here together, worshiping under the banner of Jesus. But here's the thing, we've got to be like-minded and focus on commonality. And he keeps it real simple, doesn't he? At the beginning of chapter two, he's like, hey, listen, look out for the interest of others and not your own selfish ambition. This is bigger than you. Think about others above the needs of yourself. We don't naturally gravitate in that way, right? We naturally gravitate toward just the opposite. And then remember last week, This is where he gets to the therefore. He says, listen, have the same attitude, the same mindset. Again, for the third time he said it, be like-minded against the culture, be like-minded in the church. By the way, Jesus set the example. Have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. And remember our mind was blown as we walked through the Trinity who being a very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Being in the form of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. What? Remember Jesus is very simply God with flesh on You got God the Father who who put flesh on and became a man, Jesus. Wait, Jesus, same guy? Yes. And then once he was crucified, once he resurrected, once he ascended to heaven, then in Acts chapter two, he descended in the form of the Holy Spirit. Same God. What? And when you say yes to Jesus, Now you've received the spirit of the living God inside of you, coursing through your veins. 
And he's saying that is what's gonna help you have the mindset. Because naturally, you don't have what it takes to stand side by side against the culture. You don't have what it takes inside the church to not seek your own interest. But when you receive Jesus, he gives you everything you need. So he's obedient to death. So as we move to verse 12, therefore, you continue to walk in obedience. And look at what he says. I love this. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. He's like, you're obedient even when I'm not around. Do you have kids? <laughs> I think about the story of two of my kids. Um, one of my kids, I think she was 11 or 12. She was spending the night at somebody's house or a group of them. And she calls one night and says, hey, dad, there's a movie that we want to watch, but it's PG-13. Is it okay if we watch it? I said, man, I'm so proud of you for calling. I'd rather you not. And I knew that by saying I'd rather you not, that now she's got to say, my parents won't let me watch that movie and, and maybe not be cool. But you know what? I had no doubt that she wouldn't watch the movie because I told her no. And to my knowledge, she didn't. <laughs> I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. Um, I've got another daughter that called me one night about 10 o'clock. I was sitting in AT&T Stadium at a preseason Dallas Cowboy game. At about 10 o'clock, my phone rings and I see her name and I'm like, hey, and she's like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> at, at the game, is it fun? <laughs> mm. Mm-hmm, yeah. So what time do you think you'll be home? Be home about 2 a.m. Okay, well, hey, you have a great time. Load them up. Let's go. Because here's what I knew. Because I knew her. That between 10 and 2, all bets are off. And here's the funny thing. I showed up at 2 a.m. and she wasn't home. And when she did get home... She was grounded, and the next day we talked, and I said, hey, can I just ask a functional question? If you're gonna call and ask me when I'm gonna be home, and I show up when I say I'm gonna be there, why would you not be home? And just watching her like. <laughs> and then I did what every good parent would do. I said, how dumb are you? <laughs> yeah. True story. I'm not going to name names. They're all just precious in the eyes of the Lord. So, so here's the question. Spiritually speaking, which category do you fall in? Are you obedient when no one else is watching? Do you live a life worthy of the calling of Jesus no matter what? Or do you find yourself in this whole area of forced compliance? Maybe even this morning, maybe you showed up today, maybe you haven't been here in a while and you're just checking a box because you feel like that somehow you were made more acceptable because you attended church today. 
Like you think that your team is gonna win the Super Bowl, right? Because you were here at church. I mean, we think that. We think in some really deranged way that our worth in the kingdom of God is really dependent on us showing up here this morning. And he's like, hey, listen, I'm glad you're here. This is a corporate celebration where we can all together celebrate who God is or we can listen to the teaching of the word. But here's the deal. It's what takes place tomorrow morning out there. That's the evidence. It's the fruit of your life. So look, check out this next phrase. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So let's take a minute and unpack this. Um, I think that could be a pretty confusing statement, right? Continue to work out your salvation. So if you grew up in an evangelical church, Work and salvation don't coexist, right? And so Paul has kind of thrown out something that can be very, very easily misunderstood, that you have to work for your salvation, that somehow there's something you can do to earn it. But this is where we have to practice a thing called systematic theology, right? So we've got to look at the verses around it and see, get some context clues. And verse 13 is going to tell us this, but let's just take a bigger kind of, uh, let's, let's, let's kind of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking at? A bigger view. Yeah, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but let's, let's look at other writings of Paul to see if we can get some context clues. In Romans chapter 4, Verses one through five, he talks about Abraham. Abraham would have been known in Jewish culture and even those in that uh, arena during that time would know Abraham as one of the righteous Jews in all of Jewish history. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? In fact, if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. What is he saying? He's saying the most righteous one to ever live at the time, Abraham, was not justified. He wasn't saved because of what he did. In fact, he said, hey, if he works, I'm obligated to pay him a day's wage. But he is not righteous in the sight of God because of his own works. No, he is justified by faith. He is saved because of his faith. In Romans chapter 11, verses five through six, he says this. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. That word grace, it means unmerited favor. It means something good that happens to you that you can't earn. And that is a picture of the gospel, that when you on your best day could not make your way to God, God's grace through the cross of Jesus, the the spilled blood from the cross, his broken body was was the sacrifice and payment for your sin. That's grace. You can't earn it. Those are the words of Paul, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, a, a classic verse. For it is by what? 
grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of what? Works. Lest anyone should boast. What does that mean? You can't earn your salvation. So now let's move back in to what he's saying here. He's not saying that they had to work for their salvation, but rather that their obedient lives were the proof of their salvation. He's saying the same thing that the half-brother of Jesus, James, said in James 2, verse 26, when he said, faith without works is what? Dead. But it's not works that justify you. No, your works, your deeds are the proof that you're following Jesus. It's the fruit of your life. So think about your own life. And I think I say this a lot, but um, like if tomorrow you went to your office and you decided in some moment of clarity that you were to declare yourself to be a follower of Jesus, would people be surprised? Like based on what you talked about last Monday in your, in your office with the guys, just being guys, when you're going and hanging out on the deer lease, ladies, when you're hanging out at Harvest Market, day drinking, <laughs> sorry, I've seen it. Um, but, but, uh, but, but, the, but, the, but the question is, the question is this, don't get uncomfortable, it's okay. It's all right, calm down. But here's my question. My question is, man, are people surprised when they find out you're a follower of Jesus by the way you live your life? That's what he's saying here. He's saying, continue to work out your salvation. He's just saying, be obedient. Walk in the truth of who paid a price for you. Amen. Don't ever get over the cross. Don't ever get over what Jesus has done for you. And then he says, do it with fear and trembling, which very simply means this. Take it seriously. Take it seriously. It's like, don't dumb it down. Why is the U.S. church irrelevant to the world today? Because we've prayed a prayer and we're waiting to die so that we can get ours, right? So that we can get our heavenly reward, but we're living like hell every day. And the world looks and says, what is this about? You're not living in this changed life. We're supposed to be light to the world around us. And he's gonna get into that in a minute. But fear and trembling, it just means take it seriously. So live a life of obedience. And your life of obedience shows that you have been changed. Take it seriously. Um, Andrea Turner, um, she works at Lone Star Elementary and she's the assistant to the principal there. And when we planted restoration, we were... um, meeting there for four years and she was our point of contact. So we got really close with her. And uh, in 2021, I believe it was August, um, her husband, Kevin, got COVID and ended up passing away. Mid forties, way too young. And uh, the most impactful things that I read or heard in 2021, this is top five. Uh, They were telling me that he used to tell his family, his kids, Andrea, Take your Jesus business seriously. 
Take your Jesus business seriously. He was a flawed guy. He wasn't perfect. But he took his Jesus business seriously. And that's what Paul is saying here. You've been obedient to say yes to Jesus, so continue to take it seriously. Now look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So now we've got context from other letters that Paul wrote, but he says right here, hey, it's not about you. It's not yours to do more. He said, it's not what you do, it's what you receive from God. He says, listen, for it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So Paul's saying, it's God that does the work, not you. Can you connect with that? Again, when you said yes to Jesus, you received the Holy Spirit. And some of you, you said yes to Jesus, but you're still trying to work it out on your own. Shake up the ground of all my tradition. Break down the walls of all my religion. You, this is an exchanged life. It's no longer about you. You gave up your rights to your life. You gave up your rights of ownership to make your own way the day you said yes to Jesus. So it's no longer you, it's Jesus in you. That should be very exciting to you. For some of you, maybe a light bulb's going off today and you're thinking, oh, wait, I thought that it all depended on me. I think we preach on obedience. And in a day like this, I think some of you will, will take away that you gotta work harder. I gotta do more. Oh, I'm failing. That is the enemy who speaks in condemnation. The Holy Spirit speaks in conviction, which is an invitation into a better life. He's calling you this morning to stop trying so hard and receive his life, the exchanged life. Remember Galatians 2.20? For I have been crucified with Christ. Now it's no longer I that lives, but Christ who lives in me. It's an exchanged life. It's no longer my life to live. I give up the rights to my life and I say, Jesus, it's all yours. Amen. Your way is better. So we talk about a lot, Ephesians 2.10. This is another Ephesians 2.10 right here. God's purpose fulfilled in your life. That before the foundation of the world, there were things that God had in mind for you and only you to do. And Jesus is the activator of those things. So here's the thing. If you don't know what your purpose is, you gotta get in the secret place with Jesus and ask him. And day after day, as you begin to become more like him, think more like him, you become like-minded with Jesus, he begins to fulfill his purpose in you. Amen. Okay, let's keep moving. Verse 14. My mom used to use this against me all the time. Uh, do everything without grumbling or arguing. <laughs> Greg, empty the dishwasher. Oh. Philippians 2.14. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. Yeah. 
that's taken out of context. <laughs> What's he saying? Live in, live in obedience and do it without arguing. Do it without complaining. You obey because you love. Mom. <laughs> God rest her soul. Uh, yeah. Um, Paul is saying this. Forced obedience is different from loving obedience. Forced obedience is not really obedient. We obey because we love. I mean, think about, have you read the story of Jonah? Fascinating story. God comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to preach repentance. And he is so moved by that that he gets on a slow boat moving in the other direction. He's running. I mean, dude was straight up racist, right? He hated the Ninevites. So he gets on a boat going the other way. A storm comes up and they come and they say, man of God, what's with the storm? And he says, it's me. Throw me overboard because I would rather die than go to Nineveh. And they're like, all right. They throw him overboard. And as he's sinking, he begins to pray this prayer. Oh, God, forgive me. Forgive me. Your unfailing love is what rescues me. And God rescued him by getting eaten by a big fish, right? For three days, he's in the belly of this fish. He spit up where? Nineveh. (laughs) And he is so transformed by that experience, he goes and angrily preaches repentance to a group of people that he wanted to die. They all repented. God rescues Nineveh, and then he sits up on the hillside, angry with God. Why did you rescue them? And then the story just ends. That's your story. That's my story. That God keeps pushing us toward the plan that he has for us, we reluctantly go and then out of some diligence, we'll do some version of what he said with our own twists to it. And then when God moves, we're angry because that's not the way I would have done it. Forced obedience is not obedience. Verse 15, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. So he's already mentioned becoming pure and blameless. In chapter one, verse 10, he talks about this whole idea so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So the day of Christ is the day that Christ returns. We know of it in Revelation 19, right? So uh, we got the whole Bible to pull from now and we're still looking for that day. And that day, Jesus told his disciples in the upper room the night before he was crucified, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you and my father's house are many rooms. I'm gonna get the rooms ready and then I'll come back for you. And so what did they think? He's coming right back. So they're literally, they watched him ascend, right? How cool would that have been? And lo, I'm with you even till the end of the age, right? (laughs) Disappears. 
So they're watching the sky for Jesus to return day after day. And then that watching, they develop other groups of people called the church. And now the church is expected that Jesus is going to return at any time. And now 2,000 years later, it's a great story. Almost a fairy tale, right? We have lost our sense of urgency. We're not looking to the skies for Jesus to return. In fact, for most of us, we're like, well, I'm supposed to go hunting next weekend. And so Jesus, if you could return on Monday, because I'm gone all next weekend, right? Jesus, my daughter's getting married in June. And so if you could come back, say, July, but I actually want her to have, you know, some grandkids. So if you could hold off for a couple of years, right? We're making deals with God all the time. We are not expectant of his return. We're not excited about his return. In fact, most of us, when we think about it, we're scared to death because we fear the unknown. And yet the early believers, they were expectant. And he says, hey, as you live lives of obedience, you know what you're doing? You're preparing yourself as a sacrifice for God to bless, pure and blameless, and you're presenting yourself as someone that God can use. What happened? What happened? Where did we we, uh, turn left in this story that now holiness is an option? Now there are two sets of rules, right? There are those who, you know, back into the kingdom because you prayed a prayer at some point and then the really good ones get the, get the you know, the holiness kit. Now to follow Jesus, it's a different way to live. And you either say yes or you say no. And there aren't levels to following Jesus. It's just following him. Saying, Jesus, whatever you say, and the more you are with him, the more your, your heart and your life is transformed. You're not pure because of yourself. You're pure because of Jesus. You're not blameless because of yourself. You are not God's gift. Amen. But being blameless is a gift from God. Amen. Because when he looks at you, he sees the blood of Jesus for everyone who has said yes. And he says that... Um, that the purity of your obedience will stand out in the darkness, that you'll shine like stars in the sky. So very simply put, the world is dark. We live in a very dark culture. And if you begin to live out the purposes of Jesus, you will live counterculturally. You will look different. You will shine because the world is dark. And so light is the contrast to darkness. And guess what? People run to the light. Yes, they do. Amen. No one loves darkness. People want light. Amen. That's what you're called to, to live as people of the light. Then he quotes Deuteronomy 32.5 when he talks about children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. He's connecting them with their Jewish roots. But what he's saying is, listen, the world is dark. People will hate you for following me. We don't understand it. 
because we live in America in 2022. But if you follow Jesus at this time, you're going to have your head chopped off. You're going to be boiled in oil. You're going to be fed to lions. You're going to be shamefully hung on a cross. That's what's going to happen if you follow Jesus. We don't get that, right? But here's the truth of the matter. The proof of your faith is the fruit of your life. And your obedient life should cost you something. It should cost you something. There should be a cost for following Jesus. There is a cost for following Jesus. So I would say that if your faith isn't costing you anything, I don't know who you're following. You will look different. You will stand out. And I said this a couple weeks ago. I doubled down on it last week. So let me triple down. The world is watching. The world is watching. So let me move in closer. Let me double click on that. Your world is watching. Your kids are watching. And remember, we live in a do as I say, not as I do culture. Well, that's not, that's not taking, taking your kids into a deeper relationship with Jesus. When they look at you and you say you follow Jesus, they're watching your every move and they're gonna follow you as you follow Jesus. So how's that going? When they look at the product of your life of what you call following Jesus, not perfection, but pursuit, do they see you laying down your agenda for Jesus? Do they see you walking away from compromise? And they're like, man, I want that. Remember, you're light in dark places. Verse 16, almost done. As you hold firmly to the word of life, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I do not run or labor in vain. So he says, hold firmly to the word of life. We went through this last week, but remember uh, the church at Philippi did not have this. They had a letter, maybe a couple of letters that were written to different churches in the region that someone else would rescribe and send it out. And so if you were the church at Philippi, you maybe had this letter that came to you and maybe you had a letter, the letter to the Ephesians, maybe in part, not even in whole, but you had some scrolls that had some of the Old Testament in it. And so they were very reliant on the spirit of God to speak into their lives and help make sense of these letters they were reading. And now 2,000 years later, How much better do we have it? We have the word of God. We have the Holy Spirit. We've got everything that we need. 2 Peter 1.3 says, we have been given everything we need for a godly life. And yet we're underwhelmed. You know, some of you have no idea where your Bible is. I would just recommend, and, and this is just free, bring your Bible to church. I think it's a great thing for you to open up. And if you're like, well, I don't know where stuff is. Well, you're never gonna know if you don't open it, right? You learn by doing, you know, but let's just take this out of it. You got a phone? There are Bible apps, lots of them. So we, we have more access to the word of God than any other time in human history. And yet it's the last, play we, the last place we go for life. We're like, God, I just, I wanna know you more. I wanna know what your purpose is for my life. 
And God says, if there were only, if I could just give you a book. To, Then he moves on and says, hey, your lives are my legacy. He says, man, I want to get to the end and know that I did not run or labor in vain. Legacy. Wouldn't you love to know at the end of your life that you get to heaven and there are people you don't even know? They're like, hey, man, you're the reason I'm here. What would that be like? They go, hey, Remember Tom Schneider? Yeah, I remember Tom. Well, his uncle's brother's sister-in-law shared the gospel with me. And I ended up trusting Christ because of that. What would that be like? What would that be like to know that, that you have no idea the deep impact you can make in the kingdom of God? Here's what I know for sure. I know this 100% for sure. You live a life of loving obedience, saying, Jesus, if you say it, I'll do it no matter what. And I'm gonna trust in your word. I'm gonna trust in the spirit of God to transform me in a way that I can live out your purposes in a transformative way. I promise you, it's the stuff that legacy is made of. And you will be shocked by the deep impact you'll have in the world around you. And it's not just a great idea. It's happening real time. Paul was saying that their obedient lives made his life worth it. Think about that. Think about the lives that you're impacting. Lives that you don't even know. Like I, I reached out to a couple of guys last week to let them know that I had breakfast with someone who brought them up by name and how much they had had an impact on his life. And when I got done with breakfast, I immediately texted them. Why? Because I want to encourage them in their faith. Yes, I want them to know, hey, your life's making a difference. So don't give up. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know if you're frustrated, if you're discouraged, but I want to encourage you. Your life is making a difference. It says, hold firmly to the word of life because it matters. Obedience to Jesus matters. And Paul's legacy was their followership. Remember, he's pretty sure he's about to die. So he's like, this has got to be carried on. And it's going to be carried on through you. I'm passing the torch. Um, Luke Benedin, uh, 19 years old part of our student ministry, just recently started working with students over the last few months, uh, tragically died in a car wreck a week ago Saturday, and uh, head-on collision, died on impact, and just like that, his life's over. And over the last week, I have talked to junior high, high school kids, even many of our uh, adult workers talked about what a stud kid Luke was, what a difference he made. He was a mentor to younger kids. He was someone that that his peers looked up to. And he was so hungry and thirsty for more of Jesus. And when you leave today, you'll see a memorial that they've just, they started gathering stuff. You know, it's, it's, there's a guitar out there and some uh, Frisbees. 
He loved disc golf. There's Taco Bell cups because he loved Taco Bell. There's creatine because he was both unhealthy and healthy at the same time. Uh, there's a box of mac and cheese. There were some Cheez-Its. I ate those, but, uh, you know, I, I just think about it. I mean, they're memorializing his life. Why? Because he made a difference. There was something about his life that now a week later, there were over 100 people here last night uh, doing a benefit volleyball tournament to raise money for the family. Deep, deep impact. And this is where we end. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. What's he saying? A drink offering. So in the sacrificial system uh, of the Jews, um, if you had a, a, an animal sacrifice, often they would take a glass of wine, uh, a, a drink, and they would pour it over the sacrifice. And that was called a drink offering. And really it was a placeholder for Jesus. Jesus in the upper room in Luke twenty-two twenty, the night before he died, he took and broke bread and then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is what? Poured out for you. Yes. Jesus became the drink offering for you and me through his spilled blood on the cross. Yes. And so Paul is alluding to his death. He knows that it's eventual, that he's gonna die. And he said, your lives are worth dying for and it brings me joy to do so. So rejoice with me and be ready because it's coming to you as well. That's not natural language, by the way. It is my privilege to die for you. But why would he say it? Because of 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus. He's like, listen, my mentor died on my behalf and now it is my privilege to die for you. To live is Christ, to die is gain. See, now for some of you right now, you hear that. We'll land the plane here today. You hear that and you're like, hey, that's what fanatics are made of, right? That's, that's what, hey, you're going too far. You're going too far when you start talking about uh, dying for people. I'm sorry, that's what my mentor did for me. And if I really wanna follow Jesus, I've gotta be willing to die. And not just physical death, but death to self, right? That's what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. The, the way of Jesus is the way of death. Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ and now it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. I gave up my rights to my life the day I said yes to Jesus. And now I get in the secret place and I beg him to illuminate the scriptures to me and to speak in a still small voice. And it's Jesus, whatever you say, I'll do. What would that life be like? What would it be like if 400 people that are in the room today, they're in the lobby, maybe a couple hundred people online. What would it be like if some percentage of us said yes? It's the life I want. Do you think that would not turn Montgomery County upside down? Yes. All right.
So let's close real quickly. I'm gonna rifle through these, so write fast and I'll talk fast, all right? Uh, number one, in order to follow Jesus, you have to obey Jesus. Do you get that? In order to follow Jesus, you have to obey him. You cannot say you're a follower of Jesus and not obey his commands. So what area of your life is outside of his obedience? Are you willing to take stock in your life today? I mean, for all of us, Jesus is a great idea. Does anybody not think Jesus is a great idea? I mean, you're here today because you fundamentally believe that. But this is not just about ideals. This is literally taking on the life of Jesus and saying, hey, listen, you tell me what to do and I'll do it. And holding firmly to the word of life. You've been given everything you need for a life of godliness. Number two, true obedience is birthed out of love, not out of obligation. Remember, Jesus said it, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. The true test of real obedience is love. Remember verse 14, don't complain, don't grumble. Forced compliance is not the life that God blesses. Obeying because you got caught is not the life that God blesses. It's obedience out of love. Number three, a life of obedience to Jesus is countercultural in the church today. Do I need to say any more about that? We do not naturally gravitate toward holiness. Um, we do not naturally gravitate toward the way of Jesus. We come, we sing, we hear a word, and by the time we hit the door, we're already thinking about who we're picking in the Super Bowl this afternoon. It's like, hey, maybe we need to dig a little deeper. Maybe there's something more. It is countercultural to live the way of Jesus. But here's what we know when we do. We shine like stars in the sky. In the church today, I hear a lot the term radical obedience. Has anybody heard that? Man, this, it's time for radical obedience to Jesus. Well, here's my question. When did obedience become not enough? Right? The only reason we say radical obedience is because it's radical when someone actually lives it out. We don't need radical obedience. We just need obedience. Number four, obedience is easier when you're connected to the voice of God. It's not easy, but it's easier. God has a plan, but you gotta receive it first. You don't go out and just make stuff up and hope God blesses it. No, you sit, you receive from him, and then you live out whatever he tells you to do. That's secret place living. And finally, obey what God has put in front of you today. Some of you want a five-year plan. Some of you are, are, are neck deep and trying to figure out, well, what is God's plan for my life? You know what his plan for your life is? Obey today. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 34, hey, quit worrying about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. No, sit with me today. I've got things that I wanna do. Sit with me today. I'll tell you what to do today. And tomorrow, we'll take care of tomorrow. Be obedient today. So what's right in front of you? Stop waiting for the big lightning bolt. Stop waiting for the big giant purpose, the book you're supposed to write, the movie you're supposed to act in, the next promotion you're supposed to get, the bigger house, 
God, what do you have for me today? What if that's the life that he has for you? A life that you're so surrendered to him that you say, whatever you want, whatever you want, and I'm all in. I'm all in. That's the life that God blesses. Jesus, I...